all of us is going to be challenged with something in life. We don't get to decide the challenge. Mine was 27 years of false imprisonment. When I see a 10-year-old kid dying of cancer, that's not going to live to see 11th birthday. Hey, man, I got to call my blessings. Jason Flom is one of the most successful music executives in music. He is also one of the foremost advocates for wrongful convictions in the United States. He is on the board of the Innocence Project, and he has gotten more people out of wrongful convictions than anybody I know, that's for sure. And he's very humble about it, and will say he just played a role here and there. But he is a passionate, passionate advocate. Tell me how you got interested in this. It was a serendipitous situation, which was that I opened up a newspaper that I didn't normally read. I think it was a daily news, but I was on my way to play tennis, something you can certainly relate to. And I wanted something to read. And the Times was sold out, and I grabbed the news, and there was a story in there, the news or the post about a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. You know, I thought I was reading the wrong story. I was like, I don't even understand how this could be. I didn't know anything about mandatory sentencing cases back then. And, you know, I had struggled with substance abuse as a teenager and into my 20s. So, you know, I sort of thought, wow, you know, there but for the grace of, you know, who knows what go I, right? And it really hit me. And I decided I had to try to do something about it if I could. And I was too naive to know that this was a virtually impossible thing to do. But I called the only criminal defense attorney I knew. It was a guy named Bob Kalina. He represented some of the rock acts that I had signed, including Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row. And they were getting arrested, you know, weekly. So I had him on speed dial. So I called Bob and I said, Bob, you know, is there anything you can do? He said, there's nothing you can do. It's Rockefeller drug laws. This is just there's thousands of cases like this. What do you want? And I said, well, do me a favor to talk to the woman. So he talked to the mother, her mo- Stephen's mother. It was the kid's name was Stephen Lennon. His mother's name was in the article. She had been advocating for clemency for him from Governor Mario Cuomo and had recently been turned down. And it made the newspaper because she had gotten some very high-level support from some very prominent people, including Geraldine Ferraro. And so that's why I was in the paper. I asked Bob to talk to Shirley, the mom. He did. He agreed to take the case pro bono. And even though he said it was hopeless, we ended up in a courtroom six months later in Malone, New York, which is right up on the Canadian border. And they brought this kid, Stephen, in in shackles like he was Charles Manson or something. Nonviolent first offense, remember. The arguments went back and forth, and I didn't really know what I was experiencing or listening to, but I did know that I was sitting there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand with her husband Stan on the other side of her, and when the judge banged the gavel down and said the motion is granted, that was it. I mean, that was the greatest feeling I'd ever had outside of the birth of my daughter at that time. It was that lightning bolt moment. You know how that is, and I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do more of that. I didn't know how to, but I knew I was going to try to figure it out. How long did it take before they let him out? About a month. He had served nine years to the day when he was released, but he had six more years before he was parole eligible because of mandatory sentencing laws. So, you know, and it was interesting, Doc, because he came to see me after he got out. He came to New York City from upstate and we had lunch and he said to me, listen, you know, I was a knucklehead. You know, he says, I'll admit it. I was doing stupid stuff and I might have gotten killed doing what I was doing, you know, because I was I thought I was, a, you know, <laughs> some kind of character or whatever. 
So he said, but you know what? After a year in prison, there was nothing you could get me to do. I wouldn't cross the street against the light. He goes, I'm not trying to go back there under any circumstances. I don't need 15 years to figure it out. So the whole disproportionality of it, the whole draconian nature of these sentencing laws hit me like a ton of bricks. I did some reading. I read an article in Rolling Stone magazine which featured the work of this organization called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAMM.org. And I got in touch with them and joined their board. And then soon after that, learned about the work of the Innocence Project through something I saw on TV and, you know, went down to their offices, sort of unannounced, just walked in. And it was two guys in a room, the two founders, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, were sitting there Mm -hmm. in a room with a briefcase, a phone and a dream. And I said, I'm your guy. I'll do whatever you need. And I'll do more than that. And I'm in. You know, that was a long time ago. That was in the uh, early to mid-90s. You talk about this as draconian. We've talked about this before, but I want to talk about it a little bit more because when you enter the court system as a guy like you're describing, he was how old at the time? 31 or 32, and he had been in for eight plus years already. So I guess he was in his early 20s yeah, when so he was arrested. was in his early 20s. And I think this is really prominent for people that don't have education or income. My point is, you go into the court system and the whole thing is stacked up to, number one, intimidate you, and number two, violate the rights that you're actually told that you're going to get. Think about it. If you're a kid, particularly a nonviolent first offender, you walk in there and what do you see? Well, the judge is elevated you know, he's up on a bench. He's got flags on both sides of him. He's got a big seal behind him. Everything looks super official. Robe. He's got a robe. Yeah, he's in the robe, and he's sitting up looking down. He's got armed guards on either side of him. They call them bailiffs, but they're armed guards, and you can find out exactly how armed they are if you do something that they don't like. Then the prosecutor comes in, and he's in that court every day. So he knows that judge, they're on a first-name basis, and the court reporter is on a first-name basis with everybody. Then you come in. And the judge probably used to be a prosecutor because we know that about 80% of judges in America are former prosecutors. Of course, and they're all wearing suits, and they can stand, but you remain seated. And then they bring you up if you testify, which most of the time they tell you not to do because they think you're going to be an idiot. And in a lot of cases, they probably might be better off to not testify. But you're sitting down, and they start talking about your life. The lawyers are all in power suits. They're standing up, walking around. And you're sitting there like, what the hell? So the most important time of your life is in a very foreign setting. And I always say, if you're going to have a battle and you're going to have any chance of winning, you need pick your battles. You need to pick your battlefield. You need to pick the time. You need to pick the circumstance. You get to do none of that in this situation. And then if you stub your toe and you get a guilty verdict or you get bad advice from a public defender and take a plea deal, then you hit these mandatory sentences. I don't know how many there are now, but we've got people in, first offenders, nonviolent, on drug charges in states where it's now legal. Right. We've got people serving life in states where it's now legal. Where it's now, it's no longer a crime. Right. I mean, and that sounds like some like, wait, wait, 
what are you talking about? Like, what planet are we on? That makes yeah. no damn sense. And by the way, one other thing I wanted to add to what you were saying before, Doc, about the courtroom situation is that a week ago today, I was in San Quentin visiting a guy who I'm hoping will be freed very shortly, who was explaining to me that when he was at trial, it's an L.A. case, he was held in the L.A. County Jail, um, which is a unbelievably dangerous and scary environment. He said he saw a guy get his throat slit in church uh, while he was being held. He said, you know, he saw a lot of terrible things, but that was the lowest. But he was saying that, and I think this is for the most part the same around the country, but on days when you're going to court, they wake you up at three o'clock in the morning to start the process of getting you transferred and getting you whatever the hell it is. Then you go to a holding cell in the courthouse, right? And by the time you get to court, you know, you have slept because they don't bring you back until almost midnight, right? Because by the time they deal with all the paperwork and all the other stuff. So as he was saying, you're getting three hours of sleep a night if you're really lucky. And then you're going through, you may not be getting fed because with all the, you're missing meals as you're, you know, you're getting back to prison. It's not yeah. like they're giving you a meal on the bus. So you're in actually the most weakened state. It's literally the opposite of the scenario that you described, right? It'd be a miracle if you could have a rational thought. And here you are literally with your life on the line and you have got to be ready to help your defender mount a defense in any way you can because ultimately it's your life is not theirs and there's a lot of very good defenders out there but there's a lot of them that are overworked and underpaid and overmatched and underqualified some of them are drunk you know and here you are in an impossible situation with your life on the line yeah and the public defenders as you say a lot of these men and women are passionate and competent and want to do a good job. And some of them aren't. The thing that bothers me is no matter how good they do, no matter how hard they work, they get rid of a case, they've got an endless line standing there. So working hard on a case, it doesn't improve their quality of life or their day because it's like spitting in the ocean. They're never going to get to the end of the line. So if they work hard, don't work hard. It's the same effect on the public defenders. No, that's right. Many of them are juggling over the course of a year. It could be as many as 400 cases. And so since we know courts aren't open on the weekends, you could be talking about more than one case on average per day. And right. that's if you don't have any time off. So it could be two or three cases a day. And some of them mean really well. There's that wonderful movie called Gideon's Army that profile some of these heroic public defenders, but they're seriously underpaid. And they are, as you said, paid by the hour. You know, you can't really expect too much. But I wanted to ask you this. I was thinking about this the other day, Doc. So I've seen many cases where the person gets convicted and in the ensuing days or weeks, their defender gets disbarred for all sorts of misbehavior, right? Could be anything from being high or drunk to being uh, criminal themselves, to being mentally unstable. I know how I feel, but I wanted to ask you whether you feel like if there's a certain window of time after which you're convicted that your defender gets disbarred for any one of these types of misbehavior, should you be entitled to a retrial almost automatically? Well, it seems to me that you clearly have a constitutional right to adequate representation. And if you don't have adequate representation, then you've not had due process. I mean, you're entitled 
to a timely and fair trial. And if you don't have a timely and fair trial, then it seems to me that you've not gotten what you're constitutionally guaranteed. We've got a saying in Texas, for every rat you see, there's 50 you don't. And if you see a prosecutor, it's just like when you see a medical examiner that has faked autopsies or just made them up. You find that on one case. Well, let me assure you, do you think that's not true on 50 other cases? So that's called into question. If a medical examiner has been found to be incompetent or dishonest, they throw out every case that he's ever dealt with. Why would you not do it with lawyers? Right. We've had that with drug lab scandals as well, like in in Boston, where that woman was found to have been stealing drugs, lying about the quantity of drugs, lying about the types of drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And they had to reopen or throw out, I think, 20,000 cases because of her years and years of malfeasance. It's probably too kind of a word. And while we're at it, let's not forget the fact that we have these mobile drug testing uh, protocols in this country, which we know are so wildly inaccurate, and yet yeah. people are going to jail every day because they're getting, you know, they're mistaking in these field drug tests when they pull somebody over, they've mistaken donut crumbs, baking soda, baby powder, baby formula. They mistook bird poop for, I think, methamphetamine in one of these yeah. tests, and yet they're still in practice, and people are still being arrested based on that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we don't have a system that. We would like to think that we do. I think most people go to bed at night thinking that the system is fair until something happens to somebody that they love. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what the hell is going on here? So that's why I'm so thrilled that, you know, to be here with you actually spreading the word and helping to hopefully move the needle to affect change so that we can eventually have this pendulum swing back to a place where we have a system that's fair for everyone. Well, what do you think needs to happen? The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. If we've got these people on death row, Rodney Reed, example that we've worked on, where four medical experts say it's not possible he did it. And so he finally gets a new trial after 22 and a half years. What's wrong with the system that this person got convicted and has sat there 22 and a half years before somebody pays attention? and says, okay, we need to look at this again. There's no way you can give him back 22 and a half years, even if he gets a new trial, even if he is found not guilty at that new trial, he still lost 22 and a half years of his life. What's wrong with the system that the burden of proof is really not being respected? That's a very good and a very complex question to answer, but we'll attempt to tackle it right now. And and we cover this on my podcast, which you've been so kind to support, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. And I hope people will tune in and learn more about these causes, because I did want to mention before we even get into the actual systemic problems that there are cases that you'll hear on my podcast where defense attorneys didn't call witnesses that were in the courtroom, right? They were just waiting to be called that could have actually changed the outcome of the trial, but they just didn't do it. 
you know, who knows why? I can't imagine. There have been cases where attorneys didn't show up for court or they slept through big parts of the trial. And yet these convictions stand for reasons that are beyond me. But I think the first problem comes, Doc, from mass incarceration itself. When you have a system that processes as many people as we do, it is impossible for it to work the way it's supposed to. And it wasn't always like this, right? We had a system where 30, 35 years ago, we had 300,000 something people in prison and jail in America. Now we have 2.2 million. The system's not designed to be able to handle that kind of caseload. Why is that jump from 300,000 to 2.2 million? There's a number of reasons for that. It started with Nixon's war on drugs, right? And, you know, we know now because, what was it, Uh, Haldeman, right? His aide that came out just the last year or two and said that President Nixon wasn't actually interested in drugs, but he he wanted to declare a war on black people and hippies, and he couldn't call it that. So he came up with a different idea. I don't want to say clever, but a devious plan to call it something other than what it was. And at the time, no one cared about drugs in America. It wasn't even in the top 50 of concerns of, of the general public. Police departments also didn't care about it. And when they found out that police departments didn't want to go around and arrest people for low level drug crimes, they created these incentive plans, right, where they would give federal money to the police departments in exchange for them meeting quotas of arresting people, mostly young people, and charging them with these low-level drug crimes. So, of course, that was the first thing that exploded the prison population. And then the politicians started passing these mandatory sentencing laws, and they got worse and worse. It was very difficult at that time for a Democrat, and still is, I guess, for anyone to stand up and say, I think we should lower the drug laws or lower these laws or or lessen sentences, and then they'd be afraid to get called out and called soft on crime. And of course, you know, when Dukakis was running for president, it was leading by a lot. And the Bush team came up with this idea that they would sort of launch this ad that was so diabolical, right? They took one case of a guy who was on a furlough in a program when he was the governor of Massachusetts and then had gone and committed an awful crime. And they said, you know, that one case proves that this guy, you know, wants to let everybody out of prison and wants to, you know, and it was an early progenitor of what we have now where we try to demonize people and we try to, you know, politicians take individual cases and try to scare everyone into passing these stricter and stricter and harsher and more conservative, I guess you could say, laws that end up doing nothing but locking up generations of people, mostly people of color. It's a national shame. And I think the pendulum is finally swinging back in the other direction now, certainly on the state level. And hopefully we'll see more progress on the federal level. But it's way overdue, and the number of lives that have been destroyed and the number of families that have been destroyed. Everyone that goes to prison, Doc, is somebody's family member, right? Those people are moms, dads, uncles, aunts, sons and daughters. They may be grandparents. And the whole family goes through terrible hardship when they're, uh, especially if it's somebody who's a breadwinner, but if it's a mom or anyone, goes to prison. And then the cycle continues. Well, and one of the things people don't realize is when you try to fight back after you've gotten this kind of conviction, the appellate process starts with getting your judge to admit that he's done something wrong. Right. You're actually getting somebody 
to criticize themselves. Right, you go back to in front of the same judge in most cases, exactly. right? And it's and that's another that's where it thing. Starts. But we've got to stop it on the front end. I mean, these wrongful convictions and these mandatory sentencing cases that I've I've gotten involved with, and in some cases been able to make a difference in, um, are a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's very meaningful to any individual person, but it's a dry, it's a tiny drop in the bucket. And you know, I wish I could help everyone, and I and I you know I'm going to do everything in my power to affect positive change on a macro level so we can impact many, many more people. But we have to fix the system. You know, we have this thing now called the guilty plea problem, right? There's a hashtag guilty, hashtag guilty plea problem now. And, um, you know, 97% of felony convictions, as you know, in this country are results yeah. of guilty pleas. And the fact is, it's the only way people can really deal with this uh, exactly the scenario that we've just laid out, right? When they know they're going into court with virtually no hope in hell of proving their innocence, they may decide, and, and these many of these people are people who came from neighborhoods where they've seen the justice system at its worst, and they go in and they go, you know what, if I got to do, you know, a certain amount of time in prison, even if it's years, I'm not going to take a chance that I get life or something else, you know, if I, if I have to, if I, you know, try to plead my innocence. Well, that's the leverage that makes the playing field so unfair because the prosecutor's not going to take a case to trial that he or she doesn't feel like they can win. That doesn't mean the person is guilty, but they've stacked up all the evidence that they have. They know what that trier of fact, if it's to the bench, or they can persuade a jury with, and they have unlimited resources. Correct. The prosecutor, if they need to put 500 man hours, they can put 500 man hours. The public defender can maybe put three. If you're lucky. And so I've said before, the biggest problem with the justice system that I see is you're entitled to the best defense money can buy. That's right. And we're, it's, it's in, you know, we'll get into the economics of it and, and how economics really drives all of this or socioeconomics. Um, but the, you know, the fact is I want to talk about, too, trial by ambush. And, and also I want to make a recommendation for anyone who's listening, if you want to do, you want to read one book about this, there's a book out right now called Usual Cruelty. That's Usual Cruelty by Alec Karakatsanis. And you won't be able to remember that name probably or spell it. I have a hard enough time doing it. But if you just Google Usual Cruelty, I promise you, if you read the first 20 pages of this book, you'll be more woke than many law students in this country. And you'll really begin to understand the, the, the intensity of the problem that we have on a macro level and a micro level of how this system has broken down. But but yes, of course, Doc, the fact is that all of this was driven by economics, right? It's There's that, you know, The New Jim Crow, another wonderful book by Michelle Alexander that talks about the fact that this mass incarceration grew out of slavery, ultimately, right? And it is the modern day, in my view, um, people may criticize me for this, but it's the modern day equivalent. Slavery is only illegal in one state. And people are going to say, wait, wait, they're, they're Googling now. They're going, that guy flops crazy, Phil, what'd you do? But the fact is that slavery was never made illegal in this country. It was only made illegal for free people. So it was sort of a bone they threw to the South uh, at the end of the Civil War. So as a result, what happened was in the aftermath, People went around, authorities went around arresting black people, people of color, 
for loitering, for not having an ID on them, for not having a job, for mowing their lawn the wrong way, for anything. We've got thousands of laws in this country. Nobody knows. No one could possibly know all of them. And then they put them in prison where there was convict leasing and all this other stuff. And it became this new form of slavery. And now today we have prisons in America. Listen, we make everyone knows you make license plates there, but they make Victoria's <clears throat> Secret underwear and Starbucks coffee cups and so many things you wouldn't think are made in prison. And you know what? The labor can be as cheap as four cents a day, an hour or, you know, out here you have a dollar. Uh, was it a dollar a day or a dollar an hour they pay the firefighters that are, right. that are you know coming out of the prison and, and doing this heroic work and then they aren't even allowed to become firemen when they get out it's insane they train them for the fight fires and they come out and risk their lives for this pittance and then they can't become firemen so the one state do you know what the one state is where slavery was outlawed last year in a referendum colorado really they're the first one yeah it was a, it was a um it was a referendum a ballot referendum and they outlawed slavery, so they can't do that in Colorado anymore. But uh, everywhere else, they still can, and in most places, they do. So there's an economic incentive. It's an eighty billion dollar industry, the prison industrial complex. So there's a tremendous economic uh, uh, incentive to keep it the way it is, and that's got to change too. There's a, a wonderful organization called Worth Rises, run by my friend Bianca Tylek, who is taking on this this problem and suing prisons and 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 trying to take the profit out of it because until we do i don't think we're going to see real change valentino dixon grew up in downtown buffalo now as a child valentino was a gifted artist who loved to draw but then one night august 10th 1991 his world well it was turned upside down as he was wrongly accused of shooting and killing Toriano Jackson at Louis Texas Red Hot's restaurant in Buffalo, New York. Now, as a product of all of that, he wound up sentenced to 38 and a half years to life in prison. Today, Valentino and Marty Tankliff, who is now an attorney himself, was wrongly convicted and served almost 18 years before being exonerated of killing his parents are joining me today to share their story. Marty, tell everybody where you were last time we talked. I was in a New York State prison serving a sentence of 50 years to life, where my first parole board appearance would have been October of 2040. Wow. So had my conviction not been overturned and I not been exonerated, I would still be in a maximum security prison cell right now as we speak. This situation is absolutely beyond belief. You woke up on the first day of your senior year in high school and sadly discovered that your mother and father had been brutally stabbed and bludgeoned. Your mother, Arlene, was dead. Your father, Seymour, he was fighting for his life. And you called 911 and gave first aid to him, but he later succumbed, correct? That is all correct, yes. Tell us what happened from that point forward, you wake up that morning, you find them. After calling 911, uh, law enforcement showed up at my house pretty quickly. Uh, I had some family members who showed up, but I was isolated. I was separated. And instead of me going to the hospital where I wanted to go, where my family demanded I go, 
I was taken to police headquarters. And instead of being with my family, my father, I was interrogated for countless hours. The interrogation wasn't audio recorded. There was no video. There was no stenographic transcript of it. And after countless hours, uh, the detective said, I confess to the brutal murder of my mother and the attempted murder of my father at that moment. And I was arrested. Uh, and that was the last day I saw freedom for several weeks until I was given bail. Now, you were taken to the police station and you were interrogated for countless hours. How many hours are we talking about here? We really don't know. I mean, because I, all I remember, it was brought in when it was light out. And when I finally left, it was dark out. Um, and since law enforcement chose to be deceptive, dishonest, a lot of the record keeping wasn't accurate. Um, but we would say that the interrogation was probably anywhere from six to 10 hours if we had to give an estimate. And a windowless room, you know, no food, no water, no contact to the outside world other than, you know, well-seasoned homicide detectives. Now, this was Suffolk County, right? It was, Suffolk County, New York. Yeah, and this was a law enforcement agency that was under investigation for corruption at the time, including coerced confessions. You, know, you didn't know any of this at the time, of course, but we know it now. We know it now, and one of the, the, the primary focuses of that investigation was K. James McCready, who was the lead detective in my case who showed up at the crime scene in my home shortly after the 911 phone call when he wasn't scheduled to be working that day. He was supposed to be at his construction site, but he showed up in maybe a half hour dressed in a suit and tie. Wow. Now, as I understand it, there was a finding that he had perjured himself in a prior murder case. That's absolutely true. He had obtained a false confession in a prior murder case where he listed a confession that a knife was in a particular location. Um, and what ended up happening was at a later point, they actually found the real knife in a completely different location. And it was a judge, uh, Stuart Nam, who demanded the governor, which was Mario Cuomo back then, to conduct a special investigation into Suffolk County and their tactics. Uh, and it was a finding that McCreed had committed perjury, but it didn't stop him from remaining on the police force. Wow. Now, he faked a phone call and told you that your father had regained consciousness and identified you as his attacker. That is absolutely correct. And that was just one of the many lies that he told. As a 17-year-old kid being hammered by these professional interrogators in a windowless room with no food, emotionally torn down because you know what's happened to your mother and father, take me through that moment when he tells you your father has just identified you as the attacker. For people to understand, you got to have to understand being you know, isolated, separated. You're being told that, you know, that these law enforcement who I was brought up to believe in and trust in, were telling me that they had evidence of my hair in my mother's hands. And, and then all of a sudden, McCready does this fake phone call where he comes in. He goes, listen, Marty, he goes, we know you did this murder. 
They just pumped your father full of adrenaline and he identified you. And at that very moment, you kind of the, the world just comes crushing down on you. There's this disbelief. And I, I said, there's no way my father would say that. I said, the only thing, the only reason why he would say something like this, because I helped perform 911 on first aid that morning. And McCready goes, you know, kind of stop the bullshit, Marty. We know you did it. Your father just said you did it. Just tell us you did it. And that's kind of how they get false confessions. They have you starting to believe their lies. And you, you kind of almost fight with your own brain because you know what the truth is. And for me, being this innocent kid, growing up trusting law enforcement, here I have law enforcement telling me that what I know to be true isn't true. I've talked to prosecutors, federal and state prosecutors, that even in the face of DNA evidence, even in the face of confessions from actual killers, are still skeptical of false confessions They'll say, look, people just don't confess to crimes they don't commit. I mean, they're intelligent people that, in the face of overwhelming empirical scientific evidence, are still skeptical that somebody would confess to a crime that they did not commit. Do you find people that still look at you askance? With, without a doubt. And what I have to do is I explain to people is that I can prove to you in about a minute that you'd falsely confess to something you wouldn't do. And they kind of look at me like, how can you do that? I said, okay. And I usually do this in a very large crowd. I said, everybody who has a sibling, please stand up. I said, everybody who, when they were home alone with their sibling and your parents went out, a lamp broke, a plate broke, something broke, remain standing. Then remember when your parents came home and said, we're not going out for ice cream until somebody tells us that they broke the lamp, they broke the plate. How many in this room said they broke the lamp, they broke the plate because they wanted ice cream? Generally speaking, about 50% of the people remain standing. I go, you just confessed to something you didn't do. And all of a sudden, you kind of get these wide eyes kind of going, oh, God. And I go, that was for ice cream. Imagine something that's a million times worse with a threat of execution, the threat of death, the threat of imprisonment, the threat of more psychological torture, more physical abuse, you'll say anything for it to end. But then people kind of say, I kind of get it now. I go, think about it. You said you broke a lamp or a plate for ice cream. And that's when you start to get people to say, maybe I would. <laughs> you know, and, and it's one of those moments where you have to simplify it so much for people to get it. And even then, sometimes they kind of say, well, I would, that would never happen to me. Yeah, that's because they haven't been there, particularly on the heels of the trauma. And then 17 years of your life are gone. Valentino, for you, it was 27 years, right? Yeah, 27 years. False imprisonment. Well, how old was your daughter when you went in? Four months old. When you get out, she's a grown woman, right? Yes, yes. She's, she's, when I get out, she's uh, 28. What do you say to yourself about it right now as you sit there? Well, I'm, I have, I'm, I'm a blessed man. Right now I'm sitting in my car. My, my daughter's running a restaurant five feet away with my grandkids. And, you know, and hold on. And she became a school teacher. So, you know, mine turn out a little different than other people's because, you know, but 
I went in at 21, Dr. Phil, and I walked out at 48 years old, you know, and I'm a strong believer in God. So God had a purpose for me. You know, you won't believe this. And I put this in my book. In prison, they used to call me the black Dr. Phil. Okay, because I had read over 600 books and everybody came to me for advice. <laughs> yeah, you're wearing your hair the right way. I can say that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But I mean, mine would have ended very tragic, tragic if I didn't meet someone like Marty, you know, and if I, if I didn't have my art to lean on, I had my art to lean on. And it was the art that got me national attention because after all my appeals was denied, you know, eight witnesses cleared me the crime and a confession from the person responsible. And that wasn't enough. You know, uh, you know, a lot of times authorities, when they make a arrest, you know, they cannot phantom making a mistake. And this is the problem. You know, we're all human here. You know, everybody makes a mistake sometimes, you know, and, and when you get the bad apples, the bad apples refuse to admit that they made a mistake, no matter what amount of evidence come before them. Well, so people understand August 10th, 91, a late night fight broke out at a gathering outside of Louis' Texas Red Hots restaurant at the intersection of East Delavan and Bailey Avenue in Buffalo, New York. Now, this Toriano Jackson was shot and killed. They got an anonymous tip, and the police arrested you for the murder and for shooting at three other people. But it was just two days after your arrest that Lamar Scott confessed to the news media that he, in fact, shot and killed Jackson. What happened then? It's supposed to be a no-brainer, you know. What happened then is they took his statement and they kicked him out of the police station and told him to get his lie straight. Get his lie straight. Yeah, they didn't believe him. I mean, Dr. Phil, I, I could tell you, essentially what happens is that these law enforcement agencies get institutional blinders. Um, and quite often when they publicly announce that they've arrested someone and all of a sudden the real perpetrator comes forward or evidence of someone else comes forward, that the person that they've arrested already, they just continue down the prosecution. Right. I mean, if you remember the last time I was on your show, there was a detective who talked about false confessions and how he had never been involved in a wrongful conviction case. And, and we know where that has led. But we see this so often where law enforcement announces they've arrested somebody and they just, it's kind of the snowball effect. They, they, they just try to build this case around that person. And, and to me, it's what happened in Valentino Dixon's case. I mean, if you've ever heard of a case where somebody two days later voluntarily goes to a reporter and says, I did it. I lost control of the gun. It wasn't Valentino Dixon. I, I know almost every prosecutor, every defense lawyer I've ever spoken to said, that's when you kind of go, time out, stop the ball. Let's take a fresh look at this case. And in Valentino's, they didn't. Well, is this just confirmation bias? Do they just lock in on this and they don't want to see or hear anything else? I would say absolutely yes, because if you look at you know a lot of the empirical evidence on wrongful convictions, we've seen so many innocent people go to prison, and later on, when the facts come out, we discover that the law enforcement had evidence that pointed to someone else 
not the person that was convicted. And I think it's confirmation bias. I think it's institutional blinders. I think it's also a sense of if we reveal the truth, what's going to happen to some of our other cases? We'll, we'll, we'll all of a sudden we open Pandora's box. And, you know, we, we know with Louis Scarcella, who was on the Dr. Phil show uh, with, with you, uh, and we see what happened with him in all the cases that he was involved with. So I think that's a perfect example how there's this level of protecting their own, protecting their own mistakes. And when all of a sudden, it's hard to call it a mistake. It's more of an intentional act that we discover the intentional wrongdoing, the intentional act. It's deeper than just one case. Well, here's what Scarcella said. And this was in 2007, but here's what he said. I'm Louis Scarcella, and I spent about 29 years in the New York City Police Department. I've investigated 241 murders, and my main objective is to get a confession that would assist the investigation into a conviction. Are there rules when it comes to homicide? No, no, there are none. I will do whatever I have to do within the law to get a confession or to get someone to cooperate with me. I lie to them. I will use deception. The bad guys don't play by the rules when they kill mom and pop, shoot them in the head, ruin the lives of their family. I don't play by the rules. There are a lot of tactics you can use. I like the emotional tools. I sat down one day and I prayed with an individual. Sometimes I would use a lie. I had a case and I said, I have your prints. You were there and that's it. He says, no, no way I wasn't there. It was like four in the morning. I had to take him to the bathroom and he says to me, Lewis, you were right. I was there. But he kicked me and I shot him by accident. Don't you feel better now? He's been doing 37 and a half years to life. He said, we're always accused of coercing confessions. I've been accused of brutalizing people. I was accused of taking a 17-year-old boy and banging his head numerous times against a file cabinet. It just never happened. Really good detectives are born with a sixth sense, that crystal ball in the stomach. And I have the ability to get inside a person's soul. What do you think about that, Marty? Uh, knowing that he's been involved in, I think that we know about, over a dozen wrongful conviction cases, I would question every single thing he said. Um, he reminds me of you know the detective who basically says, there's no camera on me, there's no person watching me, there are no rules that apply to me. I mean, last year we had 161 exonerations. Out of that, I believe 102 of them were as a result of police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, or some other government misconduct. That's a number that should scare the shit out of people because if you think about 161 exonerations in one year, and that's based on the limited number of people who are doing this work. How many other innocent men and women are sitting in prison because of people like Scarcella? Uh, and, you know, it's just a matter of breaking people down and then throwing them a life preserver where it's like, okay, you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling helpless. 
So now I'll tell you, tell me what I want to hear, and I'll get you out of this situation. The number one tool of the abuser is isolation. It's clearly abuse when they're doing that. That's what I think Lamar Scott's confession two days later is so credible. It wasn't involved in it, had no law enforcement whatsoever. It was completely voluntary. He reached out to somebody because I think in deep in his soul, he knew he could not allow Valentino to go to prison for a crime he committed. He didn't trust law enforcement. So what did he do? I guess back then, maybe the next best thing was go public and say, I did it. And the scariest thing is that when he was arrested again for another murder, I think he made some kind of statement along the lines is, had you listened to me way back when, when I said I committed this murder, I wouldn't have been able to commit this crime. Yeah, of course. And Valentino, you had a bunch of eyewitnesses, which we know eyewitness testimony is often involved and not very reliable at all. But you had eyewitnesses that said you did it, even though you had somebody confessing. I'm really curious, and I think our listeners and viewers are curious about what you were saying at the time when the shooter was saying he did it and they were ignoring him and prosecuting you. Well, Dr. Phil, I come from a very bad neighborhood, a lot of stuff going on there. And I had to ask myself, you know, was I in the twilight zone, you know, because I, up until now, I, I've been around a lot of people in the, in the hood, as they would say, that do some awful things. I grew up with a lot of these people, but I never knew that these type of humans existed. Someone that would actually get on the stand and lie about a murder case. You know, it was later proved that they were coerced by the prosecution, you know, and but also I had eight witnesses that cleared me. So it was over 90 people that witnessed the shooting, Dr. Phil. So it was at a public restaurant. And, you know, you just can't you just can't ignore that type of evidence. Eight eyewitnesses. And I took a polygraph test and passed it. Did this get to you emotionally? Were you angry? Were you depressed? Were you helpless? I mean, how did you feel? Well, what happened was this, you know. It took me seven years to get my 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 focus and, and, and normalcy to a certain extent back. Seven years. And it wasn't until my uncle sent me some color pencils and some paper. And he says, hey, you know, if you can reclaim your talent, you can reclaim your life. You know, and I started drawing. And the drawing for the next 20 years is what kept me strong, what kept me going. Art was important to you before this all happened, right? Oh, yeah, I went to performing arts for art, you know, and, you know, I've been drawing since four years old. I won an art contest, you know, and, you know, but for seven years, I hadn't drawn anything, painted anything. And it wasn't until my uncle sent me those supplies that my spirit started growing, you know, because prison is a place designed to break your spirit. And, you know, I, I, I took to the art again and, and it, it saved my life. I've always had a great spirit. I've always loved everybody. I get along with everybody. And prison didn't change that for me. I had my moments where I was bitter and angry and everything. But I can still wake up in the morning and smile and laugh, man. I'm not I'm not harping on that stuff. I'm just glad that I made it out. Too many of my friends didn't make it out. You know, some of them committed suicide. Did you ever consider that? Oh, yeah, man. At least once or twice a year, you know. But I knew that I had a bigger purpose. 
And that's what kept me going. And what was your bigger purpose? My bigger purpose was to make my family proud, to leave a legacy, you know, and to change the world in some small way. And I mean, I talk to kids now about making the right choices in the inner city, all of these kids going to prison where I come from, you know, and so for me, that's more fulfilling than anything in the world. And I was also there to help guys get their GED because I was one of the educated ones, you know, to help guys get their GED, you know, to, to counsel them about making the right choices upon um, being a released. So, hey, for me, it was, you know, I don't have, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, man. That's all I can say.